0: is the constant threat that we as Christians face is it the world outside is it maybe liberalism is it progressive christianity is it the lgbtq and their agenda what is the constant threat against our christian faith and the church And what is behind all sin? What motivates it? What drives it? The answer is the same answer that drove Adam and Eve to sin in the garden. And it's the same thing that drives men and women away from Christ each day. The answer is autonomy. You might be thinking, well, what is autonomy? What does that even mean? Autonomy is made up of two Greek words, autos, which means self. He, she, it, self. And namos means law. A law unto yourself. Self law. Autonomy is the desire to live outside of the control of God. Autonomy is the desire to live as if there is no God. We see this manifest very clearly. If you're a parent and you've had a two-year-old, they want to assert their autonomy. And what do they do? They throw themselves on the floor, right? And they scream and yell and they say, no, I want my way. And we sort of laugh, but we, we never really outgrow temper tantrums, do we? What is all sin but a shaking of the fist at God and saying, I will not do it your way. I will have it. My way, and old Blue Eye saying it best. I did it my way. Right, we, that we are the in the church and facing our own is our own desire for autonomy. We want to be the rulers of our lives, the masters of our stories, and so we rile against God. This morning, we are continuing our series in the parables in the gospel of Matthew and we are still in chapter 21 and the reason why we're spending 2 weeks in chapter 21 is that Jesus does he tells two parables in the same context we saw the last week it was the parable of the two sons and that the context for him giving this parable was an argument over authority who's in charge why do you Jesus get to tell us authoritatively God's word? And why should we listen? And Jesus tells this the parable that we saw last week, but then he continues in verse 33 and he gives them another parable. Why does he give them two parables in the same context, the same problem? Well, because this problem is so pervasive it so infects all of our hearts, and it's the problem of autonomy. The parable of the wicked tenants is another judicial parable meant to lead those who hear it to repentance. They're to identify themselves correctly in the story and be cut to the heart so that they can respond in repentance. But this parable is also an allegory of salvation history, moving from the beginning to the crucifixion of christ it's a story of israel but as we look closer it's the story of humanity it's the story of every human heart and at the center of that story is a question how will you respond to god and his authority over you will you choose autonomy over god's law will you choose your own word over god's word Or will you respond to God's call to bear fruit by responding to his word in obedience? Let's read together Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we ask for wisdom and insight into your word this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that understand. Open this portion of your word, we pray in Christ's strong name and amen. So Jesus begins, here another parable. And again, this parable is meant to elicit a response. And as we saw last time, that's dangerous. He calls on them to answer the question. It's a story that's well known. As we read from Isaiah 5 earlier, we realized that they are using up and adapting to a particular situation. To respond to a particular problem that's happening in the heart of Israel at that time. He says that there was a master of a house. The master of the house is God. And then there is a vineyard that he plants and puts a fence around it and digs a winepress in it and built a tower. That is Israel. And he leases that to, the, to tenant farmers. Now, this is a common practice. A wealthy landowner plants a vineyard. He wants to receive the fruit of it, but he, so he sets everything up so that it can accomplish that purpose, right? And I'm, you know, when I think of a vineyard, I, I typically don't think of Israel, although I've, I've heard that they grow great grapes, but I, I think somewhere in France, right? And you think of these vineyards that are well cared for for thousands of years. They've, they've been around forever, and the, some of the vines are very, very old, And they've been cared for by these tenants. Many of them don't own the land. They just work it and they have a great love for it. Well, this was common in that day as well. They leased out the land with the owner expecting to get the vintage. Right? That's what the, the vineyard is for. And so when the time for that to take place comes around, he sends his servants. Now, the servants here represent the prophets, and we'll get to why that is in a moment. They come and they want the fruit from the vineyard. But what do the tenant farmers do? Well, they cast them out. They, some of them they beat. Some of them they kill. And others they stone. And then the master sends another group. And just like the first group, they are mistreated. Finally, he says, I know what I will do. I will send my son. They will respect him and so he sends there his son the tenants they have complete different purpose than the master and they say the son ah we know what we can do here now if we kill him we can inherit the vineyard it will be ours and we will no longer have to pay any of the fruit of this vineyard and so they drag him out of the vineyard and they kill him and jesus stops and he says, what do you think that the master will do to these tenants? Now, do you remember the question last week? Who did the will of the father? There were two sons. One said, he, the father asked them, go and work in the vineyard. The first son said, I will not. But then he did. The second son said, I will, but he didn't. And he asked them, which one did the will of the father? Remember, that was a bait. It was, I, I went fishing with Glenn this week. And you know, you, you put the lure out there. It's shiny, attractive. Then once they take it, you set the hook and you reel them in. right? And this is what Jesus is doing. He's giving them the bait. He tells a story. They take the bait. He sets the hook and reels them in. And this is exactly what's happening. He is drawing them to see... That this is speaking about them. He points them to scripture to show that. That like the wicked tenants they have rejected him. Time and time again. The word of God they have rejected. Refusing to bear fruit. Just like the wicked tenants in this story. And what should take place with them. The kingdom of God should be stripped from them. And given to those who will bear fruit. Now I want to focus on two parts in this parable. Both of which have to do with our responding to God. The first is by listening to his word. And the second is by producing fruits accordingly. Now, as you saw from our reading in Isaiah 5, this story is not new. It's not as if if the audience is hearing something like, Israel is a vineyard, God is the master who planted them and expects fruit. That's not a new story idea for them they've read that story probably hundreds of times these are not people who are casual bible readers these are fanatics right the the pharisees have memorized the pentateuch now that's that's a huge portion of the old testament the first five books are are foundational for the rest of scripture and they've memorized it they can quote it backwards and forwards. Not only do they know it, but they know what the down just about These are not biblical, illiterate people. Jesus is saying this story, and they are immediately thinking of Isaiah, or Psalm 80, or Ezekiel 17, all of who speak of Israel as a vineyard, and they're failing to bear fruit. So it's not a contextless parable. And stories are funny because they're, very powerful in shaping our imagination, right we love I love reading a good story, watching a good story. you get sucked into it into the drama of it you become you begin to identify with the characters you you see yourselves as the heroes of the story, right Every time I watch Braveheart, I am William Wallace, right? All of us do this, and we, we, we love the getting wrapped up in the story. And uh, the problem is that many times we misread the stories. You see, we do read ourselves as the hero, but more often than not, we're the villain. Or maybe not the villain, but we're the sidekick who wishes we were in the position of the hero and would do anything to get there, right? Even maybe stabbing the hero in the back. We're the problem was that Israel read the story that uh called them a vineyard that was fruitless, but they said, oh that 's not us and they whitewashed isaiah 's tomb right they they have isaiah 's tomb, and they 're keeping it great they're they're uh, they're making sure it 's clean it 's got fresh flowers out there they're honoring the prophets, but unfortunately it 's their fathers that killed isaiah it's their fathers Who are in line with them who have put to death the prophets, who are the ones, the wicked tenants who, when the servants came looking for fruit, beat them and killed them and cast them out. They misread the story. See, the prophets were God's servants sent as fruit inspectors, right? To come and examine Israel. Are you being loyal? Are you being faithful to the covenant, to the terms? Or are you whoring after other gods? Are you being true to God alone? And often, more often than not, the answer was they were not. And you can imagine this is not like one of those vocations where you're you're lining up to get Jimmy and, and Susie lined up to be a prophet, right? I mean, these men had terrible lives that ended early. It wasn't something you signed up for to have a long and prosperous life. The author of Hebrews puts it best in chapter 11, beginning in verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. It's not the best PR blip for your recruitment as a prophet, right? You read that, and while it's heroic you think, I don't want that for my kids, right? This is what happened to the servants of God when they came to inspect the fruit for Israel. And Jesus is identifying corporate sins. Corporate sins are sins that we are all guilty of by virtue of being a part of that corporate entity. Whether it's a nation or the church or even a family. God works covenantally, not individually. We are so conditioned in our age to think hyper-individualistically. But God doesn't work that way. He works covenantally. And He visits the sin on nations for their corporate sins. And this is what's happening to Israel. He sends His servants, the prophets, over and over again looking for faithfulness. Looking for, as Isaiah said, for them to pursue justice and righteousness. But what does he find? Bloodshed. What are the corporate sins of the church in our day? As the prophets came, they had message. Repent and be faithful to the covenant. How have we stopped up our ears and refused to listen to the message of the word of God? Well, sadly, our ethical behavior as a church nearly matches that of the world. Our divorce rates are just as high. Our marriages are not staying intact. And it means that our children are walking away from the faith by droves. We have come up with sophisticated theology such that we are having a debate within our PCA right now over whether or not it's okay for us to have a homosexual man who does not practice homosexuality be ordained. Our fathers in the faith would be rolling over if they knew that this was the debate we're having. But this is because we as a corporate body, as the church, are guilty of not listening to God's word. We have come up with sophisticated, nuanced ways to get out from listening to the word. And this really isn't any different than us killing the prophets. It might not involve all the same bloodshed, but how did Israel stop their ears from the message of the prophets? They killed them. That's the best way to silence hearing that I need to render obedience to God. Well, just stop the one who keeps saying that. And this is happening even in our church today. There is a tendency within pastors to want to water down the message of the gospel. The call to obedience is not an easy call. It's not a call for your best life now. It's a call to take up your cross and follow Christ. And it's not a message that is pleasing to everyone because it doesn't affirm us in our sin. Right? It calls us to look to Christ and be freed from our sins. But it's it's not just a corporate call for repentance, but every human heart struggles with autonomy, wanting to be freed from the law of God, refusing to submit to Him and listen to His Word. Why do we stop listening? Why do we stop picking up this Word and reading it, and meditating on it. Why do we stop opening it to our families? Well, it's because we we think we know it. We go comfortable. right? We've memorized the Pentateuch. We have the catechisms memorized. We know our stuff. We don't need to read it every day. We don't need to meditate upon it. And so we just subtly stop listening. And then coming to church every week becomes burdensome. And then we fall away. But it's, it's not just backsliders that are being addressed in this. Remember the audience. The Pharisees and Sadducees are religious elite. They're the top of their class when it comes to church. They sit in the front row and they've got everything dialed in. Right? Look at verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. You see, they heard the story. They've heard this story many times before, but now they realize he's talking about us. And what what does this do? What's their response? Do they say, wow, I When you put it like that, I I can't believe that we haven't been bearing fruit for God. How, How have we fallen short? Please show us the ways that we can repent. Lead us back to be faithful to the covenant. No, they said, that man needs to be killed. We have got to silence this person. He is upsetting the status quo. I remember thinking last year, As I watched the riots by Antifa all throughout the U.S., and I I couldn't help but think about what it would have been like that night when Jesus was hurting. And I've seen YouTube videos of people sucker-punching an old man. And as he fell to the ground, then they're kicking him. And I was just thinking about Christ and thinking about all the foresight that took to, to fold a crown of thorns and how it must have been even painful just to twist it together just so they could beat it into his head and then whipping and flogging him and dragging him bloodied through the streets of jerusalem outside so they don't defile their holy city the innocent lamb of god and then nailing him on a cross bleeding, naked, shamed, cursed on a tree. And these these men are listening to this story about the Master who says, I will send My Son, and they will respect Him. And then they turn and they murder Him. And they do exactly what Jesus said they would do. They say, come... We will inherit. Let's kill the heir. And they kill Jesus. And the heartbeat of all of it, the heartbeat of all of it, is autonomy. Is I want to rule. And it was so prophetic. Their words, as they say, His blood be upon us and upon our children. And then we're reminded of Peter's sermon on Pentecost. Says, no doubt there were thousands there who just the, day, the weeks before had said, Crucify him! Crucify him! And now they're hearing Peter stand up and said, You crucified him! The Lord of glory who God has made both Christ and Lord. And they were cut to the heart. They finally listened And they plead with him, how should we respond? And he says, repent and believe and be baptized for the promises for you and for your children. And they believe. And they finally listened so that they could respond to God's word. You see, Jesus condemns the religious elite saying, have you never read the scriptures? But they read, but they didn't listen. They never listened. And so they could never bear fruit because they heard but never listened. But God expects fruit from His people, and we must respond by listening to His word. We often convince ourselves we are listening, but the proof Jesus shows is in the fruit. Isaiah's telling of this parable, it ends with Judah producing wild grapes. It's grapes not suitable for wine. But in Jesus' telling, they don't offer anything to the master. They refuse to give him the fruit that he deserves, that he is owed. They rationalize In fact, I I can hear them rationalizing it. You know, they're thinking, hey, no taxation without representation. This guy's not even here. Why are we giving him his fruit? Right? We make these kinds of arguments. And I'm, I'm not down on our founding fathers. So I think it was great what they did. But it's so easy for us to rationalize that what belongs to God actually belongs to us. And we say, ah, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to give that. I'm going to find another way to satisfy what God wants. And there was a sophisticated way that the Pharisees and Sadducees did this. They were supposed to honor their mother and father. That meant taking care of them. But they had come up with this way, Hey, Dad, I know that I'm supposed to honor you. I'm going to honor God. And what I owed you, I'm going to give to God. And so now I'm off the hook. I don't have to even deal with you. You're on your own and Jesus condemns them for that right they've they found this sophisticated way to get around the law so that they don't have to give the fruit we have to remember that the context of this argument is over authority who's in control it can't be Jesus right it's got to be them they're the dominant privileged class at this time they're the ones calling the sh- they say what happens what's- how the nation should be run and What should be done? And Jesus comes in challenging that. And they're not having it. Jesus quotes Psalm 118, which is about David. David was rejected. Remember, Samuel comes to anoint for the the future king of Israel. And he goes through all of the sons before he comes to David. David is rejected by Saul. David is rejected by Goliath. Goliath said, you, am I a dog that you send out to me? Someone with sticks and stones? But who didn't reject David? God didn't reject David. God made him the chief cornerstone. He built on him. Even though he was despised and rejected by men. And Jesus says, that's me. And you can't see it in our text, but there's a wordplay in the Hebrew On sun and stone. Sun, the word in Hebrew is ben. And stone is eben. They sound very similar. And Jesus says, the stone that was rejected, that's me. Just like the son that you rejected and killed who was heir of the vineyard. I am that man. And they know it. They know it. And that's why they want to kill him. Justific- often what happens is because of our sophistication, because we find nuanced and I, I'm using language that I'm hearing from PCA pastors right now, they're saying we need to develop sophisticated, nuanced, pastorally sensitive theology. And whenever you hear a pastor start to say those kinds of things, you know, you have problems That means they're trying to find a workaround. How do I get out of obeying what's very clear in God's word? And the scary thing is, we can do this too. We have this wonderful doctrine of justification by faith alone. And what does that mean? That means that I am declared righteous based on the righteousness of someone else. I didn't do anything to earn it. Nor can I. That's a wonderful doctrine that we should stand on. How could you turn it? How could you twist it? Well, you could twist it and say, therefore, I don't have to live my life any different than before. You can say, it's all free. It's all of God's grace. I can't do anything to earn my justification. Therefore, there's no reason for me to bear fruit. Why would I even give fruit? I, Jesus did all of it. And then we we stifle our call to be holy and to walk in obedience to God. We can take the best things that God has given us and twist them and use them for our own autonomy. And that's exactly what the Pharisees and Sadducees are doing. One theologian has pointed to the fact that there is a A large gap between the law, which is, let's just say, the Ten Commandments, and ethics. That is the ideal of living in any community. For instance, if I treat my wife poorly, very harshly, I beat her, I talk down to her, I don't provide for her or care for her, and she is forced to work, and she is just destitute. But I never commit adultery. Do I love my wife? But I have kept the law. Do you see the law is basic? The standard is way up here, right? The ideal is the ceiling. The law is the floor. The law requires just the basics for us to live in community. But the ideal is that we love God with our whole hearts with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength. You can keep the law as the Pharisees and Sadducees show and hate God and hate your neighbor. There is a gap. And you could say that the gap is is the 18 inches between your head and your heart. But God is looking for people who love Him from the heart who are committed, loyal, nothing, but because they love God. And it flows out of their love for God. And they respond by bearing fruit. They don't say, well, because I've been declared righteous, I don't need to bear fruit. They say, because I've been declared righteous, look at this bountiful harvest. And they willingly give it to the master. The Westminster Larger Catechism is helpful here in its exposition of the law. It gives us two parts. S- duties required, that's the positive aspect, and sins prohibited. And I would encourage you to use that as a resource. Use it devotionally, read through it, and you, it will strike you how much of God's law you have taken for granted. The positive aspects. ultimately, Their fruitlessness stems from their rejection of Christ. Why? Because it's offensive to need Christ, is it not? What is the human heart who is bent on autonomy? How does it recoil when someone says, You're dead. You're dead, man, and there's nothing you can do about it unless you look to Christ by faith. And cling to his righteousness alone. You have no hope. We don't want to hear that. We want to hear that I just need to do this. And then I'll be fine. We want to hear some steps on how I can make my life better myself. That's what autonomy wants. That's why the self-help section in the bookstore is the largest section. Because we don't want to be told you're dead and you need a savior. It's offensive. In fact, we'll kill that guy. Just like we killed the Savior. Matthew twenty-one forty-four, Jesus says this cryptic statement. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, I take Jesus to mean that he's talking about two different types of people. There are one type of people that the stone, they trip over Jesus and they are broken in a good way. God breaks them of their old Adam and remakes them. Kind of like a doctor when you've had a broken bone and it's set poorly. The doctor has to break it again to set it correctly. You will be broken by Christ. But what kind of breaking? Is it a breaking for your healing where you're included in Christ? Where you're brought into the kingdom of God? Or is it the kind of breaking that you never recover from? Where you are crushed under the heavy weight of your sin. What kind of person are you? What type? Do you struggle with the idea that his sacrifice of himself pays the penalty you owe for your sins? Or like the religious elite, do you find that you really do not need a Savior. That you have no room in your life for a kingdom like His. If that's the case, let me warn you, there are only two options. The way of life, that is the trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior, or the way of death. And that is going your own way. I did it my way. And the end is death. There are only two paths. Because God expects fruit from His people, we must respond to His word in obedience by listening and by bearing fruit accordingly. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father and God, the charge is true. We are fruitless. And yet we would abide in Christ and bear much fruit for Your glory and for the cause of Your kingdom. Root out In us, all autonomy, all desire to rule ourselves and let us be ruled by Christ. May he be preeminent over our hearts and lives so that our obedience flows from hearts that love you and love our neighbor. For we pray this in Jesus' strong name and amen.